I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Amanda Littman, and this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount. Our guest this week is Maggie Haberman, the Washington correspondent for The New York Times. It is a big, sad day for us here at Battleground because this is, unfortunately, our last show ever. I am admittedly really bummed about that. You guys have been amazing. I have loved hearing from our listeners all across the country. Some of you have been not so nice, but most of you have been really nice. And I really enjoy the opportunity to get to ask some of the smartest people I know, and many of the ones I don't, questions about what's on their mind. I've especially enjoyed shitting on Joe Manchin. It's one of my favorite activities. Because it's our last episode, I thought it'd be fun to do it with a friend. So I'm really excited to have my pal Adisu Demusi, a campaign manager and political strategist and executive director of More Than a Vote, to help me with this conversation. Hi, Adisu. <laughs> Hi, Amanda. It is good to be here for the last episode and obviously good to be here with you. For folks who are not familiar with you, even though you are famous. Oh, stop it. Tell people a little bit about your background and what you do. I have decidedly not famous. <laughs> Yeah, so I am a now for two decades political strategist, campaign manager, like you said, organizer. I came up through field, knocking doors, making phone calls, organizing volunteers. And, you know, for the last decade or so, I've been running campaigns. Um, I ran Senator Cory Booker's campaign for president in 2019 to 2020 um, and Governor Newsom's campaign here in California, where I am back in 2018. I founded a political consulting firm called 50 plus one strategies that's based here in the Bay area. And I love politics though. You know, I do it as a job, but like the crazy thing is even after 20 years, I would still do it for free. Don't tell my clients. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love the work. I love the day to day. I obviously care about what I'm doing and I care about making progressive things happen. So it is a blessing. It is, uh, I feel lucky to do what I do. It is, a, I was, I was just about to say this morning, maybe a little bit feels like a curse sometimes, but, uh, I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Okay. Adisu, tell me your read on what happened in the elections this week. We're recording this Wednesday morning. Yesterday was a big election day for the Virginia gubernatorial and state legislative races, the New Jersey gubernatorial and some state led races, plus hundreds more other races across the country, which I'll talk about in a moment. But Just tell me what happened. Why is Terry McAuliffe not the governor again? (laughs) Yeah, look, I mean, a disappointing night, let's say, to Mm -hmm. say the least. Yeah, my Braves won the World Series, but I couldn't even really, like, celebrate that. Yeah. Because, obviously, more important things were happening across the country. But, look, I think this always happens, first of all. 11 out of uh, the last 12 times, the 
president's party, doesn't win the Virginia governor's race. But I think it obviously is bigger than that. I think what happened in New Jersey, it looks like Governor Murphy is going to pull out a narrow win, suggests that this is a national thing. And I think, you know, if there's one thing that I I think it's that Democrats have to get our act together in governing, right? I think passing the legislation that's in Washington matters. The Bacalov campaign was pushing for that. And we have to look like we can govern. And I know we can govern, but optics matter. And to have what's been happening in Washington for the last couple of months happen could not have helped. And it certainly didn't help in Virginia, which is right next door to D.C. But I think it's had an effect nationally and sort of the mood of the country and, you know, how voters perceive Democrats. And so we've got to do better. Yeah, I think Virginia in particular was an example of the kind of playbook Republicans are likely going to run in 2022 midterms. Um, while exapols are obviously trash, um, <laughs> directionally, there's some interesting stuff coming out of them. It mm-hmm. does seem like um, non-college educated white women in the suburbs in particular, but more broadly across the state, moved to Yunkin, who is a basically Trump-like Republican, in pretty dramatic shifts. Um, and while we'll have to go back again at the data and see what what we see, it does seem like education was a big part of that. And that's a culmination of all of the messy conversations that we've talked about on the show, but you've seen in the news of a combination of mask mandates and equity stuff and critical race theory, even though Virginia public schools don't teach critical race theory. It's like bullshit. Bullshit, but but, (laughs) you know what? Facts don't matter. Feelings matter here. And voters are feeling something, anxious rage, you know, all kinds of stuff. That is reflecting in the way that they are voting. Yeah, I get it. I get it, right? It sucks. It's, you know, we can't ignore the fact that for a year and a half, things have not been great, right? Mm-hmm. And President Biden and Democrats are trying to do something, but the mood of the country, the feelings that folks have, and and stoked by a right-wing propaganda machine, um, they are taking advantage of those feelings. And we cannot, you know turn our blind eye to the fact that what people feel matters just as much as the substance of the matter. Yeah, you know, the Republican sort of expression of like, fuck your feelings. Well, in this case, the feelings are the only thing that really matters. And I think this is a hard thing for Democrats to wrap our heads around of like, the facts on the ground are irrelevant. You got to show that you understand people's anxieties here, even if that anxiety is in many cases pretty racist. We got to put that aside. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. That campaign, look, I've run a lot of campaigns. Campaigns are about the way things are Mm -hmm. as much as they are about the way things ought to be. And I don't like saying that. I wish it weren't so. But those are the facts. That's the way it is. And you got to meet people where they are. And so... The, the one thing I will say is there is a lot of time until November yeah, of 2022. Man. And anybody who says, oh, this is a slam dunk harbinger of things to come, like has obviously never done this before. We are going to be in a whole different place with respect to COVID, the economy, what the issues are, current events come this time next year. But we have to learn the lessons of what these last couple of months and what um, this week has taught us. And you mentioned Washington before and what's happening in Congress. I really hope that Democrats in Congress use this as a wake-up alarm. Not just that we have to prove that we can govern, but this might be our last chance. The next year, especially the next like six months, might be the last chance we get to do something meaningful for a very long time. Yeah. If you do not use that opportunity wisely, like, maybe we don't deserve it. (laughs) (laughs) Sad but true. Look, the endless focus on process, stories, process you know, back and forth about negotiations, et cetera. People want action. 
right? Mm -hmm. That's why we elected Joe Biden. That's why we elected Democrats to go to Congress. That's why we threw Trump out in a lot of ways. It wasn't just his being an asshole. It, <laughs> it was the fact that he wasn't getting it done on COVID and getting it done on the economy at this point last year. And so do what you were elected to do. It's pretty much that simple. That's exactly right. Before we get into our conversation with Maggie, I do want to highlight some of the good stuff that happened yesterday, because outside of the losses in Virginia and the sort of close win in New Jersey, there was actually some good things that occurred. So a few that I noticed last night, and granted, this is from my purview at Run for Something, where we're really focusing on state and local elections. Indira Schumacher, a 27-year-old activist, took out an incumbent on the Des Moines City Council. Indira was running on a strictly fund the police platform. It was a pretty big victory for her. In Austin, Texas, a ballot initiative that would have expanded funding for the police lost pretty wildly. You love to see that. In Detroit, Gabriela Santiago Romero became the first openly LGBTQ woman to win a seat on the city council there. Boston obviously elected Michelle Wu as their next mayor, the first woman and first woman of color mayor of Boston, along with some amazing women of color on the city council, Kendra Hicks and Ruth C. Louis Jin, who are just phenomenal. Do you see any other big wins from yesterday that you were excited about? Yeah, just one I'll add more than a vote. An organization that I lead worked on issue 24 in Cleveland, which successfully now created a commission to investigate police misconduct. And I do think that some of the folks you talked about as well, you know, we obviously saw the big news of the day were the statewides, but at the local level, from elected officials to municipal ballot measures, we saw a lot of progressive things pass. And I'm preaching to the choir here when I say it, but it matters, right? It, it matters mm -hmm. immediately, but it also matters four, six, eight years that these folks that you helped get elect, these ballot measures that we helped pass are law of the land and those folks elevate to future office. So it's not all darkness. It's not all darkness. There is some light. There's always some hope. And as you mentioned, Cleveland, I'd be remiss if I didn't shout out the next mayor of Cleveland, 34-year-old Justin Bibb. Yeah, Justin Bibb. Yeah. He is just a star. Great guy. He's going places. After he's finished with Cleveland, he'll be a senator from Ohio, and you'll be able to say you heard it here. With that, let's get to our conversation with Maggie Haberman, Washington correspondent for The New York Times, a political analyst for CNN, and part of the reporting team that won the Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting in 2018. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Maggie Haberman, welcome to Battleground. It is uh, good to see and hear you. Good to be here. Good to be had. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm going to start with maybe a tough question, maybe a big question, but why not start where we sure. Go big. where we need to start, which is Gallup poll, I think from last month showed that 
trust in the media is down to a 36%. How did we get here? So, you know, the media has not been a popular industry for a very long time. And some of this is certainly on us. Some of it is not. But, you know, we didn't get here overnight. And I think it's a difficult question to answer now, because while there is no question there are any number of things that the media has done and that we could do better, I do think that we are in this moment in time and have, have been here for a couple of years now, if not more, where the media gets treated as if it's an elected official. Mm. And we're not. And so I think that in general, the conversation we have about the media perhaps needs to be reframed. I do think one of the big problems with this is there is no more single the media that when we have this conversation about media trust, it lumps in New York Times and Fox News and everything in between from things that are perhaps more reputable to things that are much less so. And I guess I wonder how you as a reporter covering what is, in fact, hard news for a place that has very rigorous fact checking thinks about who you hold yourself accountable to. In terms of the diffuse nature of the media, I mean, I think it's been headed in that way for a while. And I don't think that's, again, just an overnight thing. But I don't think it's been that way in terms of, you know, there's one entity called the media since the last 30 years, maybe. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it really is with the advent of the internet that changed things enormously. But sure, you know, 50 years ago, there were three television networks, really, right, that people paid attention to. And now there is much more of not just a choose your own adventure aspect for people kind of wanting to have their own views reinforced. But because of the internet, and particularly, I don't want this to all to be about Twitter, obviously, but because of Twitter in part, everything looks the same. Mm -hmm. I remember saying to my colleague, Alex Burns, when we were at Politico, back when I was a big Twitter scold, and Twitter was a relatively new site. And my protest about using it was, I said to Alex that everything looks the same. And he said, what do you mean? And I said that I can't tell the difference between a six-part investigation that's being promoted by a broadsheet to a TMZ tweet. You know, they all look the same. And I think that that's also true for individual users on Twitter mm -hmm. and so forth and so on. In terms of who we hold ourselves accountable to, that's a complicated question, but I hold myself accountable to our readers and my bosses, but that doesn't mean I'm going to agree with my readers uh, on every criticism they make. And I think we have entered a world where the feeling is, I just criticized you and therefore you must agree with that and recognize that you are bad. Mm. And I don't really think that that's a productive conversation. And I also don't think that that's realistic. And I think a lot of things go into news gathering and news decisions that the public often doesn't see and that I think makes a lot of assumptions about often assuming the worst. You mentioned the readers and the editors. I'm wondering about the, the sort of fourth participant in this, which is the algorithms that determine how much reach your work ultimately gets. Well, I don't, I don't actually think about that. Really? So, I mean, yeah, it, that's not, I mean, I, I really was answering you very honestly. Mm -hmm. I don't think in terms of, you know, search engine potential. Or retweets. <laughs> yeah. Or retweets. <laughs> or something is, I don't though. I mean, the, yeah. I certainly don't think in terms of retweets, if anything, uh -huh. I might think about the ratio, but <laughs> I think in terms of whether something is newsworthy or not, that is how I think. And I'm not saying that that's what everyone does, yeah. but just you ask me personally, that is, that is how I approach things. So, okay, we won't make this a conversation about Twitter, I promise, but. I'm holding you accountable. Who are you holding yourself accountable <laughs> to, Adisu, on that? Uh, I should. We have to address the elephant in the room, which, uh -oh. you know, you've been pretty public about your love-hate relationship with Twitter. <laughs> I have. I, I make no secret about it. Yeah. And I have it too, uh, for what it's worth. Uh -huh. But you, you know, as someone who made their career before Twitter, obviously, I'm just curious, how have you actually changed your work to adapt to this era? Have you? Because it's hard to believe that you haven't 
done something differently, whether it's the reaction you're going to get or how it will present in 280 characters or just jumping into the news cycle because it's no longer 24 hours, it's 24 seconds. Right. Do you feel like your job has changed because of Twitter and how has that affected your reporting and the way you approach your job? No, it's a good question. I So I think Twitter has changed how we all do our jobs just because that becomes, you know, it's where you can break a story, frankly. It's where you can put news as it's developing to lay down a marker as having, you know, been the first to have it. Um, you know, the danger is speed kills, right? And so you have to make sure that you're not putting something out there that's not unvetted or incautious. And I think we've all struggled with that. I'm not the only one, um, but I certainly have. It's just changed the way we do our jobs in the sense that there's also this kind of immediate feedback, right? You put something out there and then you get this reaction. And sometimes you get more information because you tweeted something and that's very helpful. I get tips in my direct messages. I get people who flag an error for me. I get people who flag a tweet from somebody else related to something I'm covering. All of that is very helpful. But I don't know that it's changed it in terms of any other meaningful journalistic metric. I just worry generally about the speed. So Which is not, I realize not the most satisfying answer. But no, no. I mean, I, honestly, I hadn't even thought about the, oh, okay. the idea that it's actually a reporting. It helps you with your reporting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? And, you know, no, I know. No, it seems like it hinders reporting, but it doesn't actually. It's, it's, if you it's, look at your replies yeah. or yeah, anybody's, <laughs> you know, it's like all nasty, but there are diamonds in that rough, I guess. So. Yeah, they're not, they're not great. I mean, there are people, you meet sources on Twitter. There are people who I develop, you know, friendships from Twitter. It's not all bad. There's a lot bad, but it's not all bad. <laughs> when you read through your Twitter feed, the folks that you follow, how conscious are you of the folks using it as a strategic communications tool? I think the the danger on Twitter is always engaging in general. And so for people <laughs> who are using it as a strategic communications tool, they have a different goal mm-hmm. than reporters. Or I mean, that's the other issue with Twitter in terms of my point about how everything looks the same, yeah. right? It's, it's like a bunch of people are on there for different ends and using the same thing in a very different way. Um, I'm mindful of it. I guess, tell me a little more what you mean when you ask that, and then I can probably give you a better answer. Well, like, I will tweet things about the work that my organization does, and then I'll get Mm -hmm. DMs or text messages from reporters. They'll be like, I saw you tweeted that. Tell me more. I'm interested in writing a story. And it was like, yeah, that was the point. Do you think, feel like, when you think about the way that you interact with the platform, do you keep that in mind? You know, I'm certainly aware of it, but I don't think that I interact with it the same way that a lot of people do. I'm mindful of, for instance, you know, this is obviously also an elephant in the room, but, you know, I'm really trying not to just kind of put Trump statements all over Twitter because that is what Trump is looking for. That's the point. Yeah. (laughs) But he's also the leader of the Republican Party and at the moment the favorite for the nomination next time. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a line between you know, other people's goals are not our goals, right? So like, that's fine that his goal is to get attention and whatever, but if something is newsworthy, it's newsworthy. And so if the future potential nominee for the Republican Party is attacking the just deceased retired general who he's making fun of for getting nice coverage, that seems worth noting. Is it breaking news? No, but it's certainly worth covering. You know, is his tweet about Mark Meadows' book or his his statement, rather, about Mark Meadows' book, is that worth covering? Probably not. So I try to be thoughtful about that kind of thing. I do want to dig in more to the if it's newsworthy, it's newsworthy thing, because I do think Trump, obviously, sort of his whole existence is driven around being newsworthy and making newsworthy statements. Mm -hmm. And so you, you kind of address this now, but how do you balance out the 
need to tell people what is happening versus the understanding in your mind that you are doing exactly what I, I, let's actually frame this in the context of the former president. Like, you know, you are doing his bidding at some level, but you also know rightly that it is quote unquote newsworthy. I'm not doing his bidding. That's where I disagree with you. But, but you know what? I'm, I, I don't mean to put that negatively. No, but that is really important because that yeah. is where news consumers look at this and say, you're just doing what he wants. Again, there may be an end that he's pleased by. That can't factor into my decision. And people it. wanting it to factor into our decisions is a problem. So yeah, that's fair. The decision should be whether it's newsworthy or not newsworthy. And I think about this all the time. Something an editor at the New York Post, who then worked with me at Politico, one of the people I learned the most from in this business, uh, my former politics editor, Greg Barnbaum, said to me at one point, when I was all tangled up on some possible investigative story and it, it was kind of going south. And he's, and he's, I mean, it was, it was a very simple statement. He said, their problems are not our problems. And he was right. And so at the end of the day, all of that stuff goes on the side of the ledger. You know, Donald Trump's aims are also not my problem, yeah. you know, for or against. And I'll flip it around. There were people who were really upset when I tweeted about the fact that he was telling people he expected to be reinstated. Why are you doing this? This makes him happy. I, I, that's not because it's objectively newsworthy that the former president of the United States is saying this to people and trying to get other people in the conservative world to elevate that. That's news. I'm sorry. So, But it does create a tension, right? Which is if it's disinformation. Yeah, you have to make clear. You have to be clear whether, you know, what they're doing yeah. as you report on it. And I did make that clear. And I do think we have to do that. But I don't think there's a tension between reporting on what a former elected official who is still very much an influential person in, a, in one of the two major parties, I don't think there's a tension on reporting on what they're doing when it explains, you know, their thinking or their methods mm -hmm. or, or what have you, as long as you properly contextualize. Do you have a rubric for newsworthiness when it comes to Trump? Like you gave an example of the book versus Powell, but I'm wondering if there's like criteria when you think about these. You know, it, no, I think it's the, you know, you know it when you see it, right? I mean, I don't <laughs> think it's like him forming this company, this merger with this existing NASDAQ firm, that's news. I mean, they, you can contextualize and explain whether it's all done through a spec. So is the, does the valuation mean anything? Not really. Do his personal finances come in here? Probably. But it's still worth reporting, especially because it means he's likely to be back on social media in some fashion. <laughs> um, I don't think his rally is objectively news anymore, right? I'm not even sure it was objectively news. Much, I don't know, but no, not, not, not ever. No, I don't yeah. agree with that. But certainly, but like, I don't think that every rally during the presidency where he was saying the same thing over and over again, I don't think that that was objectively news. But I just, the tension, I would, I would flip it back. And this really is in terms of how Democrats view Trump, but, and view the news media and what we should be doing. Um, he doesn't cease to exist just because we don't pay attention to him. And there is still actually this whole other ecosystem in which he exists. And where he is encouraging people to do things that he wants them to do and saying an election was stolen when it wasn't and so forth and so on. The, the tension is the duty to inform versus not just simply amplifying. But I think the duty to inform is pretty important. It's more Trump talk than I ever wanted, but yeah. it's important Same that here. we do it. I know you, feel, you write the book yeah. and yet I'm sure you're sick of it too. But I actually want to talk a little bit about the specific thing that happened recently. You may have seen John King. Mm -hmm. I did. Who is... I think famously as close to a sort of straight down the middle news anchor as, as yep. we've got on CNN, 100. really express mm -hmm. as much sort of personal frustration as I've ever seen him 
express about how we're debating facts, not opinions anymore. We're debating yes. about whether vaccines work, not a, whether vaccine mandates are good policy. And I've seen more and more members of the press, institutions of the press willing to go there. And I, I guess I'll ask you what you think of this phenomenon. And also, do you feel like that's your responsibility a bit too, to try to pull us back to debates over policy as opposed to arguing about whether the sky is blue or not? Or do you think that you know, you talk about the subjectivity, is it you put the facts out there and you hope, pray, believe that your provision of information is going to be what swings the pendulum back? I guess I don't agree with your premise on how it breaks down, mm. that it's cleanly policy in one section and then the other is the sky is blue. I think that you have Republicans who have very clearly argued that the sky isn't blue in policy, right? I don't think that these things are divorced anymore. And I think we've been headed this way. This isn't just some recent phenomenon. This has been the case since 2016, where it became very clear in that election that we were no longer having these, there was no longer an agreed upon fact set. Yeah. I think that it is definitely important to describe policy and debate policy. I guess that I would just make the case that even there, if you make the point that some of the arguments that are being made as relates to policy are not fact-based, there are still people who don't agree on policy. There can still be policy debates where people don't agree. Yeah. The difference is, I think, when we get into an area on something that is just sort of, I mean, vaccines would obviously be one of them. There was no question that the vaccines work. Uh, this is not an opinion. It's fine that people are, have their opinions about whether they're fearful of them or not, but all of the data explains that that's not the case. And so I think it's important for us to make that very clear. Um, I think that the news media is not a monolith, so I don't think the news media has one single responsibility. Yeah. And I think that we are grappling with these various fronts at various different points and in different at different outlets. But you, you sound like you feel like it is for John King to express that kind of opinion is is I think that's fine. <laughs> it's a good thing to do <laughs> yeah. for a member of of the quote unquote news media. I th also think that just since we're talking about John, I think that John did a very brave thing, which was he talked about his own health Personal the other day. Yeah. And yeah, and he was talking about it in the context of explaining he's immunocompromised, he has multiple sclerosis. He's never talked about this publicly. And John is really not somebody who, who does that. To your point, he's pretty just the facts man. And um, there was enormous frustration he was having. And this wasn't just prompted by this, but, I, you know, we were talking about Colin Powell before and Trump's statement on him. The other thing that happened after Colin Powell died was because he was fully vaccinated and he died after a case of COVID, he did not die from COVID. He died from underlying conditions he had. And he was 84 years old. But a lot of people who want to try to undermine the vaccines and raise questions about them used his death. And so... That's part of what King was responding to also. Um, I think this too, frankly, gets us into a rabbit hole. And part of this gets back to the original question about the media that Amanda asked, which is, you know, there used to be one media and now there's, there was never really one media, but there was sort of... Tom Brokaw and Peter there, Jennings there was and shared, Dan Rather. Yeah. Yeah. Shared stories. And, and, and there were several broadsheets that people knew. But, you know, the media has a complicated history in this country, right? There's a lot of sort of you know, pining for the good old days. And, you know, the good old days or the early 1800s were not always that great. I, but I, I do think that once upon a time in modern media, it was different. It's not that way now. But just getting back to this point, the people to whom John King is speaking or the people, you know, often who I'm speaking to, those people are not people who are necessarily debating the facts that were 
discussing. And so I guess the question becomes, how do we get back to an agreed upon fact set? And I don't know that I think that that's a failing of the media. I think that's a result of an incredibly fractious and partisan environment in part. There's no quick, pithy answer for that. I wish there were. I wish there were. Right. <laughs> when you talk about like the debate around the facts and the solution that I keep hearing you tossing out is the contextualization and the reporting. But as you said up front, Twitter does not allow for that, no. which is what makes the conversation there just a fucking nightmare. Yep. When you think about promoting your work on social media, do you like read the tweet, draft it, look at it, think about it for a minute and then hit like, what is your process for that? No, I don't do that, Amanda, as often as I should. <laughs> I thank you for asking. Um, <laughs> look, when I'm promoting a story it tends to take me a few drafts and a tweet, and I don't always get that right, and I don't always take the time. I think that increasingly a bunch of us use Twitter as normies do, right, as basically just kind of people who are not in our industry or not reporters, and that's where we get into complications. I'm just yeah. teeing it up for you there, Adisa. Yeah, I, I use Twitter <laughs> like a normie does, uh, for sure. But I will say, this is actually, you, you referenced a bit of this earlier, media figures like Jod King, like yourself, like any number of folks are now, with no offense to prior years, in the 1980s, you were a byline, right? <laughs> you know, of kind of a faceless... Well, in the 1980s, I was 12. Not you, but a, rep a, a reporter was... A, was <laughs> I was a faceless 12-year-old. You were a faceless 12-year-old, yeah, exactly. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. I'm just a byline, right? Yes. Now, media figures are reporters, pundits, yeah. public figure brands, right? Your brand, and your brands. It's definitely, well, you're, well, yeah. you're multi-platform. It's different. I think that's yeah. right. Yeah. And so, obviously, I don't think that genie is ever going back in the bottle. Like, that is, that's how it's going to be. And so, I guess the question is, how do you manage when your core business, your personal core business is reporting? I am a reporter and I am a good one, but you can't really exist in the world as it is without also being a bit of a pundit. You're on CNN, a bit of a, you know, take machine. Sure. That's fine. You're a human being as well. How do you manage all those things? Do you think it's better to go back to compartmentalizing these things and taking the negative externalities that come with that, that you'll be less well-known? Maybe your story will go a little bit less far in the world or, or is it just, this is the world as it is and we're going to juggle all the balls. Look, I, so I would, what I would say is that I'm probably the wrong example to use here, only because Trump made me such a character in his movie mm -hmm. that I think that the reactions to me are, are, are not related entirely either who I am or what I've done. That They're just kind of reactions mm -hmm. at this point, and it almost doesn't matter what I say or do. They're a little baked in. A little baked in yeah. and not even really tied to something I've done necessarily, just someone's impression of it. Twitter is like a fingerprint. It's like when someone puts their fingers on a window pane and then you just kind of see the little bit of, like what people remember is like a heat signature. We don't really remember the specifics. And so I'm probably the wrong example for that. Which is not to say that I don't think that I could benefit from being on Twitter less. The piece that keeps getting left out of this is these are news consumers. Mm -hmm. These are businesses and there are people who consume media. And and so that's that's one piece of it. And then the other piece of it, I was thinking about this when you were talking about the, um, so this is not a dodge. I just don't have a great answer. It's not going back. There are obviously trade-offs. Um, and and uh, there are ways in which I can, I think things would be better. There are ways in which I think it would be worse for journalists. But I also think that the viewer or reader feels like they're getting something out of that. I was thinking about this when you were talking about the poll number for the approval rating for the media. You know, one of the things in the last six years has shown us is the limits of institutions in this country. Mm -hmm. But I don't actually think that people have uniformly 
or across the board accepted that, right? So it's like there has been this desire to fault or blame or someone's responsible for where we are. Media and where we are in this country took us a, a while to get here. And it's not just the fault of media. You, in response to some criticism about the way in which news consumers and the broader American public are understanding the Build Back Better bill and broader agenda, Bernie Sanders had said the press has done a exceptionally poor job. And you responded, it's always the press's fault and never the fault of the people communicating something. That's 101. If it is a combination of the people who are communicating and the people who are reporting on that communication, which I think it's a little bit of both, and also it's the reader's fault for wanting the horse race and not the impact. How do these stories get so skewed? I reject. I'm sorry. No, please. Why? The stories are skewed. Can you tell me what you're talking about? I think there is a lot of reporting generally on the back and forth negotiations and much less on the actual impact of the bills. And I think part of that is because the impact of the bills don't change as much as the, well, the negotiation. But you should correct me if wrong. Or the impact of the bills do change based on the negotiations. And we don't actually know the full scope of these if a bunch of things are coming out of them, for instance. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, look, I, I think that, number one, I think that Bernie Sanders has a very long history of blaming the press. Sure. I don't think Bernie Sanders is a great example of somebody who likes to have a an open back and forth with the press that covers him. So there's that, number <laughs> yeah. one. Number two, I think it's really hard to both say that things in this bill are really popular. Oh, and also no one knows what's in them. I guess you'll have to explain to me how those two things can be true. That just doesn't square. I'm sure that we can pick apart individual stories and pick apart individual coverage. I don't think Twitter is a good representation because it's lots of incremental stuff from Hill reporters. Mm-hmm. And I think that if we're taking Twitter out of this and we're just looking at the coverage of the bill, The complaint that I hear from the White House or the complaint that I hear from Capitol Hill Dems is you guys call this a social safety net bill. You call this a big spending bill. You know, I mean, the the price tag just is what it is. That's not really anything that reporters can do anything about. I think if people want to argue about the terminology that gets used, I think that that's a separate conversation. Um, Journalists tend not to write the same story over and over again. Yeah. (laughs) And so that's like each day the same story as much as it might sometimes feel like we are. And so I think that's a part of it. There's also a president who's spending priorities. These and last I checked, where's the big speech he gave? Where's the big anything that he gave? So, yeah. you know, generally speaking, when reporters try to ask him questions, his age shut it down. And so the reason that I responded that way on the Sanders tweet is that after five years of hearing that the press is terrible from the president who was in power, I think everyone needs to have a care with how they talk about this. We're a pretty important institution, according to all of you. And so... As I said, it is always it must be somebody's fault and therefore it's the media's. If readers are not understanding what is in this bill, and I don't really think that's what it is, I think there could probably be multiple reasons for that. So let me ask you one sort of just generic question. And the answer can't be Twitter. First of all, the answer can't be Twitter. (laughs) But if you could change one thing about the industry that you work in, snap your fingers and it's different what would it be? It can be how consumers interpret your stories. It can be about how, you're not going to say this, but your editors, how they react to your stories. Like, what would be the thing that would make your job, not just make your job easier, but actually make it better in terms of informing the public, which it sounds like is your first and top priority as a reporter? It is. And honestly, this is going to sound like a cop out to you because it's not Twitter, but it's Twitter adjacent. But I actually completely mean this. If we could go back to having three deadlines a day as opposed to a real-time deadline a day. When I started out in this business at a newspaper, it was the New York Post, and we had, I mean, technically it was four because you could replate the last edition, but it was, there were three 
deadlines. There was the 7.30, there was the 10.30, and then there was the, I think it was 1 a.m. It's a lot better when we're not all filing 24 hours a day. It's just better to be able to have more time. Now, the internet exists and the models have changed, and I understand all of that, but that's my Luddite impulse. It's not that I wish my editors were different or that I wish this were different. I actually have some really great editors. I just, I wish that the world moved a little slower. Me too. Wait, what'd you say? <laughs> I was like, me too. I'm tired. It would be nice. No, but it does. It's, it's, I mean, I was thinking about this, that I was talking to an Obama strategist in the 2012 campaign when Twitter was new. And this person was saying that, you know, they were like, I just, I'm looking at this website. I just, it's like, you just don't have time to think anymore. And I mean, I, I think we all need time to think. So. Yeah. I was just one follow-up question to that. Sure. Is it because you want to be able to put more into your work or is it actually because you think the public will get more out of a regular diet of information as opposed to what we get right now, which is just like <laughs> a million inputs. As opposed to little bite-side chunks. Yes. Yeah. No, I think that's a great question, but I honestly think it's both. Yeah. I, the public would get more out of a story that has been in the oven for a little longer. And I think that being able to take more time is always a good thing. I once worked with a reporter who was telling me one of her biggest problems with the Clinton campaign in 2016 was that her editor was always going to require her to submit a story. Mm. She always had to turn in a story. And if the campaign didn't give her something to write about, she was going to have to find something. Mm -hmm. And that, at the end of the day, she had a boss. Right. Which I think is something that a lot of both readers of news and also like activists and, and strategists forget is at the end of the day, you have a boss that you have mm -hmm. to turn something into. Yeah. Um, now that you've been removed a little bit for book leave, has it changed the way that you engage with or consume news? That's a very good question. I'm a little behind, honestly. Perhaps all appearances to the contrary. I'm not actually on Twitter that much anymore, at least as much as I was. And there's whole outrages I miss. There's whole controversies <laughs> I miss. There's whole, yeah, I just like. It's awesome. It's the best. I know. I have no idea. And so like some, right. You, it's excellent. You, you have a baby like recently, yeah. you know what this is yeah. like. I like, this is, this whole process has felt a little bit like it did when, when I was on maternity leave. Um, I mean, this time I'm blissfully unaware of a bunch of stuff that's going on, but I do have time to read the paper in the morning and I do have time to sort of scour for what's happening. It's just not, I must be, you know, plugged into the matrix at all times. When you think back to your breaks, either from maternity leave or now during book leave, do you feel like it changes the way when you go back to full time, the way that you approach what is or is not important to cover? I mean, you know, no, because on book leave, I've still been covering, you know, certain aspects of, of politics mm -hmm. or of, of investigations and of DC and so forth. But I think the degree to which the Trump years were just all consuming when something was happening. I mean, I was mm -hmm. having this conversation with someone the other day. It was unusual to have a story that we had to write every Saturday, right? Sometimes more than one. But in the Trump era, that is what happened. Not the case now. Wasn't the case before that. Will it be that way again? I don't know. But just the degree to which we are all still kind of, it's like we were on the, one of those centrifugal force rides that throws you off to the outside as it's circling. And we're all like, oh, I'm sitting here, but the room still feels like it's spinning a little bit. Uh -huh. So, I mean, I think that's more my adjustment phase as opposed to, the specifics of what we cover, because I think that, frankly, we are still covering a lot of things that are related to the last era, right? I mean, like January 6th is obviously a big focus of all of ours, and it should be. That's very appropriate. Mm -hmm. You know, the former president's false statements about the election is part of our focus, and it should be. But there's also contemporary events like Afghanistan. And while I know that the current administration did not like a lot of that coverage, 
it was commensurate with what other administrations would have gotten. So I don't think that there's been a change in the aperture. I just think there's been a change in the speed. And I think it'll take a little while to see whether there's a, a change in the aperture. So I think we're coming up on time here, but I have to ask about the former president since you are working on a book, which do you know when it's coming out? Not yet. Not yet. Yeah. Um, but for those who don't know, Maggie, we've referenced <laughs> it a couple of times, working on a book about our uh, former president. He's so great. If it was like, I'm just kidding, I'm not really working on a book. Psych! It's like, but, <laughs> just Josh. Yeah, exactly. But talking about 2024, you brought it up a, a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. What are what should we be looking out for in terms of the signals that suggest what the former president will do? Should we even interpret any of this stuff or care at this point? As I referenced yeah. earlier, I try not to think about him as much as possible. But to your point, uh -uh. we can't wish him away. So what should for folks like me, for folks who consume media right now, should we be paying attention to anything he does and, and reading any tea leaves? Um, no, I mean, I don't I don't mean that as a joke. I mean, like, literally, it's a it's too early. This is something that I think you'll start to see more of. But there are a lot of Republicans who are looking at 2024 or quietly telling people, donors, supporters and so forth, um, you know, he's not going to Trump's not going to be a factor in what I do. Now, that's very easy to say a year before you have to make a decision. But I do think that there are a lot of people who are thinking you know what? I'm not waiting for him and I'm not going to wait and see. So that's one thing to watch for. But in terms of Trump, I mean, if you just look at the lead he has, he doesn't really have to do anything. That any, he doesn't have to do anything that any other candidate has to do. He doesn't have to go to New Hampshire. He doesn't have to go to Iowa. He doesn't have to start building a fundraising base. He doesn't do any of that. His biggest struggle, frankly, is getting mainstream media coverage, which is ironic because that was never a problem of his for 40 years. But so I just don't think it's particularly useful because it would be political malpractice for him personally to say he's not sure he's running right now because the second he does that, he stops being relevant and stops being able to raise money. But saying that doesn't necessarily mean he is. For today, that's where he is. I'm not sure that's where he'll be in a year. Is there, knowing what you know about him, having covered him for decades at this point, is there something that would stop him from running in 2024? Well, he always says, you know, it's funny, he's very good at leaving himself a trap door in, in almost everything. And so the current trap door has been, if I get a bad doctor's note, that's what he says. And, you know, he, like, he needs his health if something happens with his health. Um, He's lost a lot of weight, but he doesn't look unhealthy. He actually looks probably the healthiest he's looked in a very long time. So, you know, people can take that and do what they want with it. You know, the question that comes up a lot is obviously the legal issues and the investigations into him and his company. I candidly think that were he to get indicted, and to be clear, I have no knowledge that he is. We just know that that's a possibility out of the Manhattan District Attorney's Office and I think out of Georgia as well. But I think if he were to get indicted, I think that would actually guarantee he ran. So it would have the opposite effect on him that it would have on most people. But no, I mean, I, you know, I think if he decided that it really looked like he couldn't win an initial election, then he probably wouldn't run because I think he knows that it'll be hard to say it was stolen from me twice. But the country's electorate is so hardened right now. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I do think that people keep really losing sight of the fact that Trump lost by 44,000 votes in a few states. So uh -huh. if it stays that way, I'm not sure that he won't run. Can you explain that further? Him being indicted would encourage him? Because then he'll say it's all political. Mm -hmm. It's all a witch hunt. And that becomes part of his defense. Cool. That jujitsu is honestly, you know, one of his... Only makes him stronger. Yeah, it's <laughs> just, it's the one of the most frustrating things about Trump for people like me, but also the reality is he uses bad news to his benefit um, mm -hmm. in a way that is absolutely infuriating, but If real. you are not willing to be shamed, you can go very far. You can go, you can do a lot. So.
Can I ask you one more question about yourself? And then I don't know, Amanda, if you have anything else, which is you get attacked from the left and the right, depending on what you say (laughs) on a given story in a given day, your fake news one day and Trump megaphone the next. Yep, I'm both. Do you take that as a badge of honor? Do you? No, no. Does it piss you off? Like how? and, And as you come back to reporting after your book leave, especially if we end up in another Trump electoral cycle, does that affect you at all, really, is my, is my last question. <laughs> it doesn't affect me in terms of, like, will I do the job? Um, I think that I would make a point that Amanda mentioned, just I would just make this obliquely here, <laughs> that we all have bosses. I think there is some assumption that I am making all of the coverage decisions at the New York Times, which is obviously not happening. But no, I don't take it as a badge of honor. I mean, I know that there's this common refrain of if you're being attacked by both sides, you're doing something right. And like, that can be true, but there can also be valid criticisms. And I think some of these criticisms are legit and I hear them. Um, I think some are not. And I think, as I said at the start of this, I think the expectation is that someone feels that they can say, I criticized you and therefore change or admit that that's true. And I don't agree with all of these criticisms. That doesn't mean that I don't think that people really feel that way. I think in some cases they do. I think in some cases people are acting in bad faith on both the right and the left. But it also doesn't mean that I think they're all valid. So I think the thing that is hard to deal with are the people who either attack you in public or email you an attack. And I get this a lot. And then I don't respond with, I'm sorry you feel that way, or what do you mean? And I get, you know, you see, you're exactly what I said you were. Well, you just sent me an attack. Was that supposed to be an opening to a conversation? A, you know, we're not pincushions. And B, as I said at the start of this, we're not elected officials. You know, you're not writing your congressman. And so I just think there is a dialogue to be had and not everyone is having it all the time. Do you feel like there's some distinction between Maggie Haberman, the persona, and Maggie Haberman, the person? Uh, Yes, I do. And I think the persona is not actually who I am, the persona. There is this projection of me that exists, particularly on Twitter, Mm -hmm. that is not actually who I am at all. And I think one of the people on this podcast can attest to that pretty well. It's true. And I think sometimes I have done things to make that appear to be the case. And I'm very regretful about that. But I don't think it's all my doing either. If slash when Trump runs again and you end up being a major sort of participant in the process simply by by virtue, as you said, being a character in his story or in the story he tells, will you do it differently next time around? Well, what do you, it depends on what you mean by that. Knowing the amount of attention and vitriol that could come your way when you get elevated to the way that he has had a tendency to. Well, what would you, I don't know if there's an answer to this. I guess I'm not sure where that goes. I guess the other way to frame it is, are you ready to do it all over again? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> and deal with the slings and arrows that come along with, with it? No, I'm not. No. <laughs> no, you're not is a very definitive, clear answer. No. Yeah. <laughs> but, it's not, but, it's, but it isn't about the slings and arrows, which, are, you know, I have to be honest, there's a couple of trolls in particular who tweet at me all day long, like the few on the right and the few on the left. Yeah. And I'm not even aware of it anymore until somebody texts me and they're like, blah, blah, it's tweeting about you. I'm like, oh, yeah. Fine. So it's not that. It's more that this, incre- this increasingly feels like a young person's game. And I have three kids and I'm almost 50. So that's all. That would be very understandable if you fucked off into the sun and said, have fun. So Amen to that. <laughs> but we're, we're very lucky you don't. So thank you, Maggie. Oh, thanks. Really appreciate you doing this, Maggie. And It's my pleasure. Maggie and I started, Maggie covered, uh, I ran Cory Booker's Senate race back in 2013. I always love when we retell this story. It's so great. I love telling this story. And Maggie <laughs> Haberin and I got off to a, what could be said as a very bad, bad start. start in our relationship. But <laughs> Oh, no. Apparently it was, it was very, very bad. bad. It wasn't just 
bad. It was very bad. But yeah. we have come to, there's a, a mutual respect, I'd like to think, because she there is. That is definitely true. I don't care what any Twitter trolls want to say. She is an excellent reporter. And, uh, oh, thank and you for that. a great guest. From you, that means a great deal. So thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Maggie. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much to Maggie Haberman from The New York Times for joining us on Battleground this week. And thank you, Adisu, for seeing the show off with me. I'm so glad that we got to end on what I thought was a really high, interesting, engaging note. Thanks for having me, Amanda. It was honestly uh, an honor to be here for the final show. And as I said earlier, an honor to be here with you. Adisu, if our listeners want to learn more about you and follow up with you on all of the things that you're working on, where can they find you? I guess I have to plug my Twitter here, huh? I'm at ASDM on on Twitter. That's where I muse about sports, politics, and my seven-month-old son. <laughs> so you might get some fun baby pictures if you follow me at uh, ASDM. And also check out my uh, firm's website at 50P1. That's 50P1.com if you're interested in working with us. <laughs> Um, and I should say, Faz, who was the OG co-host with me early on, Faz, we wish you the best of luck with your family and make sure to keep tabs on his organization, More Perfect Union. They are doing amazing work. And as for me, if you want to follow along with what Run For Something is doing, you can always find us at runforsomething.net. I also host a second podcast, the Run For Something podcast on the Dear Media Network. Every week I get to talk to Run For Something candidates and alumni about their experience running for office and winning and sometimes losing and then running again and then governing. Talking to Run For Something candidates is the best hour of my week. And I'm on Twitter at Amanda Littman on Instagram, Amanda L-I-T-M. I mean it when I say I have loved doing this. It's been really fun. It's been really hard. And I am so grateful. I know that some of our listeners think I curse too much or I sound like a sorority girl, but many, many more have written in to say how much they found these shows educational and interesting and that they learned a lot and that they were inspired to get involved in a way that they didn't think they would before. So thank you. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount. It really does take a team to make this show happen. So I want to say thank you to the entire production team that includes David Wilson and Aaliyah Jackson, who engineer the show. Jessica Williams, the incredible associate producer who puts together such incredible research ahead of each episode. Tara Adovino is our producer and story editor. And Christian Castro-Russell is our executive producer. All of them make me and Adisu and Faz and all of our guests sound so, so, so much smarter and better than we are. And I'm so grateful to them and to the entire team at The Recount. One more shout out to Faz for being an excellent co-host. And thank you, Adisu Demisi, for seeing us off. And absolutely no thank you to Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema for anything at all. With that, thanks all.